Welcome everyone to the Top Producer Podcast. I am Paul Neifer, your host, and today we're going to have a conversation with Krista Swanson, who is the, I don't know if you're the chief economist, but you're an economist with the National Corn Growers Association, and you and your husband also farm in Illinois. Do I have that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And my title uh, officially is lead economist for the National Corn Growers Association. So yeah. you are you are close to close, right close on. lead chief. You know, I think. Yeah, uh, how do you that... want to say it? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so as usual, uh, we always start off uh, these uh, uh, podcasts with your background. So uh, uh, I've already sort of uh, you given a little hint, but let's let's go through where you grew up, where you went to college, and and all that good stuff. Yeah, so I grew up on a family farm in Logan County, Illinois, in the Hartsburg-Emden area, and my parents do still farm there today. We grew corn and soybeans, so I grew up with that experience, although I, I admit that uh, I went through a period of time as a you know teenager where I you know, wasn't sure I wanted to stay in agriculture. I think I was anxious to see what else was out there beyond, you know, the the small rural community that I had grown up in and, and was anxious to, to get out and go to college. Um, I went to the University of Illinois and uh, studied crop sciences there and initially had thought maybe I wanted to be a, a, a plant breeder. I was interested in the science, science side of things. And throughout some classes I had in my college years, it uh, led me to, you know, the economics and regulatory uh, side of, of crop science. And particularly at that time, it was sort of in the the early years of the traits. And so um, became more interested in, you know, what is the economic value of, of the traits and, and how that's impacting yields. And so that's sort of how I transitioned into a going to graduate school and major or um, graduate school studying agricultural economics. And I got my master's degree in ag economics and uh, you know FFA uh, in my in my later high school years and then those college experiences really helped me uh, determine that I definitely wanted to stay in agriculture. It opened my eyes to the fact that uh, you know I can live in a small rural community and be engaged in the farm, which is which I absolutely love. I can't imagine living anywhere else, um, but still have that you know, world impact and you know work for a national organization as I am now. And I realized how much you know, even what we do on our farms, um, you know, it is, is it's part of a world market. And yeah. so um, that's been, that's something that I really, really love about the career I've been able to have and, and still, you know, live in and, and be engaged in the farm as well. So right now you, you and your husband do farm, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So my husband also grew up on a family farm um, and we live about a hundred miles Northwest of where I grew up. Uh, that's where his family was from, but we farm uh, as well, and uh, with with his family. And my husband is also a a seed dealer, so we have that. Uh, he has that business. He's the the primary on that. Um, and then we, uh, you know, aside from we we grow corn and soybeans. Uh, my father-in-law also has some um, a couple contract hog buildings, and I always say we grow crops and four kids on the farm. Um, we have four children ranging in age from from four to almost 10 uh, next week. So uh, that's, uh, you know, an important part of our our farm and family, too. 
So if you have four kids and your oldest is 10, you're still a very bright person. But believe me, Kristen, about five years, you're going to be the stupidest person on the face of the earth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, and, and and get this, Paul. Um, so not only is my oldest almost 10, um, but my oldest three are three girls and oh. they are three years in a row in school. So oh. there's going to be this point in time where we have... Um, three high school daughters. So <laughs> your yeah. high daughters even sooner than that. So uh, yes, um, probably some of those years ahead in our future. Well, I had four boys and they're all about two years apart. And my wife's favorite saying when they're like teenagers, you know, whether junior high or high school is one boy, one brain, two boys, half a brain, three boys, no brain. We have four <laughs> boys. We're in a deficit. So, uh, <laughs> and, and then also our house was the one where well, one summer we had nine boys living with us, including our four boys. So, uh, oh my goodness. Yeah, and we always had at least, I call them strays. We always had one or two friends of my son that for whatever reason, they needed a house to stay in and they stayed in our place. So, yeah. uh, so that, that was good. So three girls and you finally got the boy at the end. Yep. We, we got the boy at the end. So, yeah. um, you know, and that, and it, of course, you know, at that we, we were, we would have, we just wanted a healthy baby, you know, of course. Yeah. Um, but it's also exciting, especially now being four years into it. Um, it's, it is, I'm really glad I got the opportunity to be a mom to, to a boy in addition to the girls and have that experience both ways. So, well, he's going to have three older sisters that are going to protect him. So that's, yeah. that's how the, the, how that works. Well, so you graduated from the university of Illinois with a master's in econ, ag econ. Yeah. What, what did you do after that? Yeah. So initially, right after that, I worked for the Illinois Farm Business Farm Management Association, where I was a fieldman, uh, you know, did um, some tax and accounting work um, for for farmers. And so that was actually a really solid foundation. Um, it, I, I knew fairly shortly into that job that it wasn't what I wanted to do long term. I I uh, uh I found that a role that was open fairly close to where my husband was from. So that was part of my interest in that initially. Um, but even though I knew it wasn't going to be a great long-term fit for me, man, that year I worked for FBFM was extremely foundational in, in terms of, I mean, gosh, the, 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 the amount that I learned in that year um, has been really beneficial throughout my career and, and also for, you know, us on the farm. Um, so I'm really thankful for that. And, and then um, I left that role and worked for First Farm Credit Services, which is now part of Compere for yep. um, about six and a half years. And uh, so did, I was in the risk management department, reported the chief risk officer, but I did loan portfolio analysis. So data analysis of the existing loan portfolio. So, so not, I wasn't a not to be confused with the credit analyst who is, yeah. you know, reviewing those financial statements and making loan decisions. This was looking for trends in in loan performance. Um, again, really valuable experience with farm credit, um, and 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 also have kind of a unique story of how I ended up in that role. I uh, actually. So I, I started that role in January 2010, and I was actually hired as a remote employee, which was pretty unheard of <laughs> in 2010. So yep. for anyone who knows where where I live is about 100 miles from from where the first uh, farm credit headquarters was, and it that job was mistakenly listed, and um, so I thought it was going to be closer to home. Um, 
And so I went ahead and applied for it. And, and then initially they said, well, if you're not going to be closer, you know, you probably don't want to make an hour and a half drive every way, every day, each way. And so I passed and then they called me back and they said, well, what about if remote work was an option? And, you know, again, this is 2010. So yeah. um, internet was okay. Yeah. You know, it's probably... yeah. And we happened to be in a very lucky rural area um, where we had excellent internet already at that time. But um, so, so it worked, it worked, you know, and, and so I started in that role, um, had a great experience there, but I'm, I'm forever thankful to uh, who became my boss in that, in that job that, or my supervisor, that he um, gave me that opportunity because it really opened the door um, to then, then, you know, the next role I had was I spent five years um, working for the University of Illinois and was uh, hired there as a research analyst for the Gardner Agricultural Policy Program. Um, and that sort of evolved into also uh, writing for Farm Doc Daily and, and doing some of the research that uh, contributed both to sort of what would be under the Gardner umbrella, but also uh, some of the general farm economics work. And, and I, um, that was, you know, even further from home than, than the previous role. And so again, I did that job remotely. Um, and, and, and so again, just sort of setting the stage for, for widening the, the opportunities, having that work experience, uh, that, that like, again, has, has been really, been really great. So, um, so the University of Illinois is, is in Champaign-Urbana. Yeah. And so how far is your farm then from, from that location? About two and a half hours. So do, we moved that you know, north? about another um, northwest. So I am northwest of Champaign. Yeah. Okay. okay. So you're up toward Quad Cities or even farther north than that. Um, no, so south of the Quad Cities, but uh, yeah, only about 30 miles to, to Moline from where okay. we're at, okay. 35 miles. Yeah, so depending on where you where you measure the start of that. Um, so so yeah, up in, uh, up in that part of the state, it's in Knox County for, for anyone who knows um, the counties. Uh, yeah, so again, I, I did that job, um, got to work with some of the, you know, really excellent um, people in the agriculture and consumer economics department at the University of Illinois. Again, um, Gary Schnicki had been my thesis advisor as a graduate student and uh, then I, I got to work with him as a colleague um, during that time. So that was that was really great. Um, and yeah, uh, I guess for anyone who doesn't know, FarmDoc is the uh, really the platform at University of Illinois for uh, extension communications related to you know, farm economics and, and any work surrounding that uh, farm policy and economics. And FarmDoc Daily is the the blog or you know daily article that that is is housed on as part of farm doc um so uh, you know got to be a contributor towards that um during those years yeah i i um, definitely subscribe to farm doc daily and for those listeners out there that do not subscribe to it i would heartily recommend uh, it's easy to uh, sign up you just go to the website and Put in your email and they'll send out the email to you every day. So there's lots of stuff on there. Matter of fact, on on my blog, every once in a while, I will refer to Farm Doc Daily. I don't know if I do it correctly, but I you know I do a link and I think that's okay. So yeah. uh, and I've had uh, I think I've had at least one or I've had uh, Professor Sherrick Bruce Sherrick on the podcast. I'll have to get Gary on sometime. Gary and I have been on a couple things together, but uh, 
uh, you know, that that'll be in the future, I guess. So, yeah, so, for sure. so you were there for about four or five years, five is that years. right? Five years. Yep. And then uh, I think now you're at the National Corn Growers uh, Association and so on. How, how did that evolve? Yeah. So the National Corn Growers Association, um, so the position that I have as lead economist is a, is a new position. Uh, and, you know, they, they decided that they would like to bring on an economist. And so uh, I, when I saw the job posting and decided to go for it. And, you know, now we're talking, we've, we've kind of talked about the story about how where I've worked has, has moved farther from home each time. And, you know, now I'm about four hours from from St. Louis, where the National Corn Growers Association is headquartered. Um, and so, you know, again, and, and again, doing this job remotely. And so like, that's where I said earlier, how, how grateful I am for that opportunity way back when, and, you know, establishing myself as a, as a credible uh, remote worker and, and having that experience that, you know, has allowed me to step into some of these roles where, you know, I, I, I'm, I thank God every day that I, I get to, you know, be able to to have have a position like this and again, still be based on the farm. So Krista, we'll go ahead and take a quick break for a sponsor message. Then we come back, we'll talk about your role at, uh, at the NCGA and then maybe dive into some of the economic trends facing corn growers and both the positives and the negatives. Yeah, that, that sounds great. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? Ten years? Top producers like Hans Reinchi of Blue Diamond Farming Company in Jessup, Iowa, know RoboAgri Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site, or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Robo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance. RoboAgri Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, RoboAgri Finance. Welcome back, everyone, to the Top Producer Podcast. Uh, Paul Neifer, your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with Krista Swanson. So you're now the lead economist at the NCGAA. So in in that role, what exactly, what's your work like or what's what's a daily, uh, what's, what's a day in the life of Krista Swanson at the NCGAA? Yeah. So, I mean, when I think about what my, my role includes, uh, you know, I spend a fair amount of time studying what's happening, uh, issues that are impacting agriculture, you know, specifically corn, but, but also the, the whole industry, uh, you know, and, and that doesn't only include, you know, our, our, our supply and demand factors, but also what's happening in the macro economy or, or geopolitical issues, uh, you know, trade, trade and transportation and, and what's happening in the policy world that that impacts it. So a lot of time, you know, analyzing and, and um, reading and learning what's happening. Uh, and then also, you know, doing some of my own data analysis um, and, and paying attention to policy. Really, I think the goal of, of all of these things that I'm, I spend my, my days doing is 
to be able to provide, you know, strategic economic input to our organization. Uh, when I, you know, think about what value I can bring is, you know, understanding some of these things that are happening and what does that mean for decisions that that our organization makes. Now, you know, certainly one of the areas that I think uh, we as corn growers, and I'm like you, I have uh, I have some farmland in Iowa and some farmland in Missouri that grows corn. Uh, we now know that Brazil is the number one corn exporter in the world, and that'll probably continue. Um, what, you know, we also know that El Nino's coming on. So what's, what's sort of the effects of Brazil, El Nino, at least for the next couple of years. Yeah, so certainly it's it's a when we think about uh, production and and you know the supply and demand and price factors at the U.S. level, uh, you know it's it's a totally different ball game than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago uh, because of the major amount of of corn that that South America and uh, particularly Brazil is producing now. And as you mentioned, they you know surpassed the United States in the 22-23 uh, marketing year as the largest exporter of corn in the world. And, and you know, I, I think that we'll see a situation where, um, you know, Brazil certainly still has a lot of, there's still a lot of potential in Brazil for expanding crop acreage. Um, they have that space. Uh, Brazil, you know, soybeans is the power crop there, I guess you would say. Uh, some of the corn that's grown in Brazil is grown as a first crop, but a lot of it is grown as a second crop to soybeans. And and as you mentioned, we're seeing this El Nino weather pattern, and uh, which which makes parts of, of South America's crop corn growing areas um, wetter than normal, but a lot of their corn growing area drier than normal. And so, you know, right now, a lot of that area is being seeded to soybeans. Um, they are a little behind in that. And I've also been reading in the last day or two, um, some some thoughts that there might need to be some replanting of soybeans. Yep. Um, so what that is, you know, potentially doing for the corn side is, um, you know, potentially reducing the fat, the, the, their ability to plant a second crop of corn um, if that soybean crop is is in later than normal or has to be replanted. Um, but also, you know, we think about their, they had a record corn production last year, um, a lot of corn on the world market. And you know, so they still have a lot of that corn because the prices have been lower than what they really, you know, the Brazilian farmers are similar to the U.S. farmers. Uh, if, if the price isn't uh, where they want it to be, they don't really want to sell unless they're in a position where they need that liquidity and, and have to and have to sell. Uh, and so, you know, we're it, it, some of those farmers were selling at prices below their break evens or or really close to that. And, you know, if you think about a farmer um, in the Midwest, I'll use as an example here in the U.S., uh, you know, that might plant wheat and double crop soybeans. And, uh, you know, at some point you get to the point where do you do you plant the, the second crop? Um, if the if the economics are, are going to result in a loss there, do you go ahead and plant that? Um, and so, you know, they also have some of those types of things to consider, too, where do you want to go through the the all the steps to to do that if if it's not going to be profitable? And so it, it looks like the stage is being set where we could see some reduction in production uh, of corn in Brazil this year. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier, I think they're certainly going to they're definitely going to remain a, a, a competitor uh, in the world market. Um, I think we could see some tempering of growth in terms of corn production there. Like the, the, when we look back at the rapid growth over the past decade, 
um, you know, maybe that growth won't occur at that same that same rate to where, you know, maybe the United States and Brazil stay a little bit more neck and neck in, in terms of, of where they're at in, in production or, um, excuse me, in exports. Um, well, so that's one thing that, uh, you know, keeping watch on too. Well, certainly, uh, you know, if you look over in the soybean side, I think in 2010 to 2023, Brazil has at least doubled their production in soybeans. I mean, it's it's just dramatic how much, uh, and there's still what I think in pasture down there that could be converted to cropland. There's still another 60 to 90 million acres that potentially could be converted. And that's not even going into the Amazon forest or anything right. like that. So yeah. it'll be interesting what, what, what happens down there. Yeah. But there's, that's definitely, um, like I said, change change the dynamics and also change um, some of what works in the United States and what what doesn't work just because uh, you know they they're producing such a substantial quantity of of corn and and soybeans. Um, and so definitely a a big factor in the world market. I, I will note, you know we've we've had some issues, I guess transitioning a bit to transportation issues and and the Mississippi River, um, hitting some low point levels yep. in, in some areas that has uh, increased the barge freight rates and, and reduced the traffic um, on the river and our ability to get some of those exports out. Um, Brazil is, is starting to have some problems and Amazon and some of their river waterways. Yep. Um, so that's also something to watch in terms of, of what they can do. Um, so that, that problem is seems to be, uh, it seems like some of the Mississippi River issues are starting to be alleviated. I mean, we're still still in some of those low positions, but we've had a little bit of rain here in the Midwest um, that hopefully we can get back yeah. to. Uh, yeah, I think they're supposed to pick abilities. up about four feet of river level here over the next week or so. Get back to that. What uh, I think if it's less than five feet below normal, so to speak, because it it bottomed out at about almost ten feet below normal. But if it gets up above five be five feet below normal, then shipping patterns is pretty uh, normal at that point. So now El Nino definitely could affect Brazil and South America negatively, but in the U.S., as far as the Corn Belt, the key Corn Belt areas. Is El Nino typically positive or negative, or is it sort of neutral? Yeah, so a lot of the Corn Belt. Um, so, so what's kind of excluded from this statement is is sort of parts of Texas and some of the southern kind of a band across the southern U.S. Um, so we do have some corn grown in that part of the nation as well. Um, but in the in the Midwest growing regions, the El Nino tends to be. Uh, favorable in terms of, of growing season weather. Um, one thing I will note is that, you know, we still, I, I uh, <laughs> no meteorologist here, um, but, uh, or atmospheric scientist or whatever the appropriate yeah, term would yeah. be, but, you know, we are, it's looking like we're having a pretty strong El Nino here for the next several months throughout the winter. Uh, but, you know, whether that will remain or what we'll see for next growing season, when we think about the impact on the crop, I think that what's what's happening during the growing season is more important. So we may be um, that's where the focus is on South America right now, because this is is strengthening. So, you know, if if this is still the, the climate pattern as we go into next growing season for 2024, um, you know, we tend to have when we look at yields compared to trend line. 
Um, some of those those years in which we are far above trend line are uh, tend to be El Nino years, um, but also sometimes some of those um, deviations to the below trend line also seem to be El Nino years. Um, uh, some of them are El Nino years and some of them are, are neutral or La Nina. But so we do see, tend to see that strength to the upside, um, but also sometimes um, to the downside as well. So uh, generally favorable. Each year is different. And, you know, we'll see where we're at in terms of climate pattern as we move into the early spring next year and what the outlook is at that time. Well, and certainly I think we've had, what, three years in a row or close to three years in a row where we've been below trend line. And yeah. and sometimes, you know, at some point we're going to have to be above trend line. And I think trend line is what, 181, 183 next yeah. year. So we'll if, if that'd be 10 bushels per acre, which is another billion bushels of corn that might be grown next year. So uh, yeah. um, now if if Brazil has a you know, maybe a, a unfavorable crop that would certainly help us on a pricing standpoint. Yeah, certainly. Um, or you you would expect that at least. Um, but again, uh, you know, that's where we have to look at what's happening on the demand side as well. And, you know, with with the amount of, of corn just, you know, in the in the marketplace and what was produced in in this past year and, yep. and Brazil's yep. Safrina corn harvest, which was just wrapped up not so long ago. And so we still have that flow of, of corn. And so I think that um, it, we, we would we would expect that we could see some relief on the price side. I think already, you know, we've we've been trading in a pretty tight range here really since early August um, in terms of the you know price for for corn. Um, but it seems like here recently we are moving a little bit higher, higher highs, lower um, or higher lows a little bit. Um, so hopefully that's a positive sign on the price side. Um, we're still we're still in that. Um, pretty tight range that we've been in um yeah. for for a couple months now so um but yeah I've, that, that I I've already marketed some of my 24 corn um you know we'll never know it's just like this spring we had a really good chance to market quite a bit but then we also or spring slash early summer, but we also were in a little bit of a drought situation. How much corn are we actually going to produce? And of course, hindsight's always twenty twenty. We yeah. should have sold more. It's always For that sure. way. But uh, yeah. But, uh, now That's... over on the policy side, you know, we had the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year. Uh, there's certainly going to be some incentives, major incentives, which we've talked about on the podcast before, related to. Section 45Z dealing with biofuel, sustainable aviation fuel, and so on. Uh, we we know that primarily we thought that SAF was really more soybean related or you know uh, cooking oil, et cetera. But really, it appears based on what Secretary Vilsack and so on has come out and said that likely ethanol is going to qualify also for some of those incentives. Is that what you're seeing on the policy side? Yeah, I mean, so certainly um, ethanol to jet is also there's a you know an ethanol pathway to to convert ethanol to make it into sustainable aviation fuel, and so um, that's definitely a, a a a bright potential spot in in for ethanol, especially as we see some of the challenges that ethanol faces um, with some of the you know proposed tailpipe emission standards and and um, you know some of some of the other policy things that are happening in terms of of vehicle use for for ethanol, and so 
uh, yeah, I mean, of, of course, there's there's a lot of hurdles that still have to be crossed in order to get to that point. Um, we definitely need the uh, we're you know yeah. Secretary Vilsack has indicated that that corn uh, can qualify for that, um, but we're still kind of waiting to see what um, you know modeling they use. So there's a lot of issues over over modeling. There's there's different models that can be yeah. used to evaluate what qualifies and. Uh, and 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 some of the models have have you know corn corn ethanol's um, ability to reduce carbon uh, compared to other other like the fossil fuels uh, has improved a lot over the years and some of the models are not accounting for that improvement and so you know if we can get that modeling set right then that definitely opens the door but um, ethanol also needs um, you know we still we still have um, some hurdles to get through in terms of continuing to lower that carbon intensity score for ethanol to to make it more viable as well. Yeah, and, and certainly one of the options for doing that uh, was these pipelines. And I forget the name of the pipeline last week that was announced or two weeks ago that yeah. they're not going to do the pipeline and the and th would actually would go probably near you. It would go yeah. into Southern Illinois into the formations down there. And then there's two proposed pipelines going up into the Bakken up in North Dakota. But I don't think, you know, potentially, even if those were to happen, that's five, 10, 15 years down the road, just because it takes that long to get through all the permitting process and so on. So, um, you know, ethanol, I think definitely has a chance, you know, I think the farmer, if their corn can show those practices that can lower that CI score that can help the ethanol plant qualify for some of those credits and and like i say until we get some official guidance right now it's all sort of pie in the sky yeah yeah waiting on that official guidance and, and yeah like you said too i think there's more movement towards um you know incorporating what's coming from the farmer as well you know what we know if if farmers are doing extra practices that can that um, be tracked through to the ethanol and help lower that score. And so definitely a lot of different um, angles to attack this from and definitely something that that we're watching um, and, and waiting. And, and like you said, I, I think we're all anxious for this, knowing that it could be um, a, a substantial market, but at the same time, uh, knowing the reality of, of the political landscape and and um, making, you know, the, the infrastructure needed and, and some of these steps um, you know, it's not, it's not going to be a, a short-term thing. It's, it's something that's, that's a ways out. So. Okay. Well, as I tend to end my, um, podcast with about four key questions, we'll do that. And then we'll, we'll see if you got anything else you want to add. But, uh, I guess the first question I'd like to ask is, uh, who was your mentor? Was there a couple, I think you've already mentioned maybe one or two, but, uh, just curious, uh, who do you think your mentors in this, uh, in this life journey so far has been? Yeah. So, I mean, definitely, um, you know, I guess I, the, the first person that always comes to my mind is Gary Schnicki. He was, um, you know, my, my thesis advisor in grad school, as I, I mentioned, um, and definitely someone who helped me learn so much, uh, and, and, and continues to, to this day, I, I definitely looked to him, uh, for, for, you know, being that, that person and, you know, another thing that I think is, um, I always think is, is special about him is you, there was a one time probably, um, oh, 
I don't know, five to 10 years ago. It's been quite some time now, but one day, you know, I walked into one Sunday morning, I walked into our church and, uh, you know, again, for the, for, I, I'm about two and a half hours from, from Champaign and, and Gary and his wife were in our church and, uh, they had, they were coming to talk about some things that were going on at their church. Um, and, uh, anyway, it was just really neat. Uh, that sort of also, I felt like then opened the door for other conversations that I've had with him over the years. And, and it was just kind of a, one of those things where it was, it was neat to see someone you didn't expect to see in, in, in that place. And, um, kind of helped build a, build a personal connection as well. Um, but definitely I would say that he's always the first person I think of. Okay. Okay. Now you have four, four kids, three girls and a boy, a husband, a farm, a job. Do you have time for any hobbies? (laughs) Well, I have to say that what, so actually my high school FFA project was a baking business. Um, so sold baked goods at the farmer's market and, um, then went on to take orders, did some wedding cakes over the years and that kind of thing, which I don't do that anymore. Um, I kind of stopped doing that after my first was born, uh, but um, still enjoy baking for fun. And so that's kind of my um, favorite hobby that I like to do. Um, also just love being outdoors, hiking, um, walking, um, you know, anything on the farm or playing with the kids. So I was uh, I was down in Phoenix this weekend for my youngest grandson's one year old birthday party that was on on uh, on Saturday and uh, and his mom made a bunch whole bunch of M and M cookies and I had to take them home with me some of them yep. so uh, so that that was okay. Uh, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Well, you know, we we already talked about how I have three daughters. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. It's definitely going to get worse. Yeah. Uh, I think I think my parents, uh, although I was, you know, growing up on a farm, I was a pretty good kid, I think. Although, well, it depends on how you define good. I mean, I, I didn't get in trouble with the authorities, but believe me, I was a farm boy. So, you know, just like yeah. any, any farm boy, cats have nine lives, farm boys have 99. I used about 98 of them. So uh, <laughs> that, that, that definitely is. And then uh, finally, what's your definition of success in farming? Um, you know, I would, I feel like that it's, you know, sort of the same as, as what I would say when I think of what is success in life. And, you know, that is really, you know, doing, doing what you do while staying true to your values and, and, you know, really reminding yourself. And I think about this, you know, a lot on our farm. And again, as we have the four children and, you know, you know, what are we doing to impact others? What are we doing to help them learn and grow and, and, and let them see the meaningful value of the work we do on the farm. Um, And then, you know, putting, putting action to your goals. I guess those are some of the, the things that come to mind for me. No, I totally agree. So is there anything you want to add before we end the podcast? No, just thank you so much for the invitation to be here. It was, it was nice to talk with you and, and, you know, be, be on your podcast. So thanks for giving me a chance to highlight some of the work that I'm doing and some of the uh, things going on in, in the corn industry right now. Well, when we have uh, maybe a, a black swan event come up in the future in, in regards to corn, we'll have another podcast. Okay. Again, this is the Top Producer Podcast. I am Paul Neefer, your host. 
signing off. Yeah.